Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to this very special podcast to mark International Women's Day, where we are talking about the news and views in women's football. I'm Carrie Dunn. And I'm Jen Offord, and we have got an excellent podcast coming up, celebrating 50 years of the FA Cup this year. Carrie caught up with Chris Legg, also author of the book A History of the Women's FA Cup Final. We'll be discussing the forthcoming Olympics and the Team GB squad. We chat about Emma Hayes and what recent reports linking her to a managerial position in the men's game says about where we're at with the women's game. And we're joined by Bristol City and Wales midfielder Megan Wynne. But first... It's a particularly auspicious year to celebrate women's football in this way because, as we'll find out over the course of the show, 2021 is a landmark year and not just because of the FA Cup. 2021 marks a century since the FA wrote a memo and circulated it among their member clubs. And it said, Complaints having been made as to football being played by women, the council feel impelled to express their strong opinion that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. Complaints have also been made as to the conditions under which some of these matches have been arranged and played and the appropriation of receipts to other than charitable objects. The council are further of the opinion that an excessive proportion of the receipts are absorbed in expenses and an inadequate percentage devoted to charitable objects. For these reasons, the council requests clubs belonging to the association to refuse the use of their grounds for such matches. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpick there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm confused, but anyway. Uh, so this move is often referred to as the ban, in inverted commas, on women's football. Carrie, you've written a squillion books about women's football and you're currently in the process of writing one about the history of the women's game. So you are very well placed to tell us a bit more about this contentious subject. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about how this ban came about? Yeah, well, let's start on picking that, uh, that lovely FA memo, which isn't pompous at all. Um, <laughs> women's football um, basically grew uh, in parallel to men's football at the kind of turn of the, of the, of the 20th century, 19th to 20th century. Um, we had the first international women's football match, as recorded, it was taking place around 1881. And what that memo starts hinting at, um, it talks about charity quite a lot. Mm. And what was happening at the time was um, women's teams, uh, quite often organised around factories, 
you know, munitions factories quite often as well. Um, we're organising to raise money for war charities and kind of poverty in the communities because obviously men folk weren't there to be earning wages. And so the FA are starting to worry that maybe some of these players are getting expenses. There's no real evidence that they were being paid, but the FA were worried that maybe it might look like they might be. Um, so also we're seeing at this time, 1921, uh, the men are coming back from war. Um, the league picks up again. The crowds aren't picking up in the same way. Women's football is still drawing quite a lot of attention. So that's also a concern. And so this memo wasn't really out of the blue. Um, the FA had written memos previously. Um, there was one in 1902 telling men's teams not to play against ladies' teams. So we were seeing these mixed matches. So basically, there was a huge amount of concern, not just that it was unsuitable for females, i.e., women shouldn't be playing it because it's too physically stressful, although there is kind of a hint at that. Mm. Not just that it's unsuitable for ladies in that women mm -hmm. of a certain social class shouldn't be playing these rough things and going out wearing, you know, shorts or kind of like kind of bloomer short things that they were wearing at the time and should be wearing dresses and not perspiring. Although, again, there is a hint at that. I think there's also a concern that the FA are kind of losing control of these rowdy women who want to play their own matches and they are not kind of part of a league which they can control in the same way as the men's teams are. So all these things draw drawn together into this perfect storm and this very stroppy memo is written and circulated. So I think, Carrie, this might be a slightly unpopular opinion, but um, I know you have some thoughts about why this wasn't actually a ban. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so again, if you look back at the wording of that, they're telling their member clubs not to let their grounds be used for these purposes, okay? So they're saying, don't let women's teams play on your pitches if you're an FA member club. But you can't actually ban the women from playing. You can't say, women, you can't play football anymore, and that's it. You can't stop them from having a kick around in, you know, in the yard at the factory. You can't stop them from going to the park and playing, and which is what they did. For the next kind of half a century, although obviously it's very difficult, they were playing on parks they were playing on rugby pitches they were playing on scrublands and there were also some examples of um, some grounds being used for charity matches but it was a very convoluted process to get the FA to approve it being used for such a scandalous reason i.e women playing on it so yes it was to all intents and purposes a ban but there were a lot of women who carried on playing in the face of this kind of opposition and the deck being loaded against them. So anywhere on the internet, pretty much, where you're, you're talking about such things and you're talking about women's football and you're talking about equal pay and, and whatnot, you can find someone screaming about how women can't fill stadiums and they will literally use this as the answer, <laughs> regardless of the question. And the uh, Dick Kerr ladies team is always going to get thrown back as the response, probably regardless of, of what's been said. Um, I know that the so-called ban has been held up, by myself included, as one of the reasons why the women's game is so far behind the men's game in terms of spectators, revenue, etc. And I'm sure it's a much more complicated picture than that, as is, as is the case with all women's sports, really. But you're not saying that that wasn't a contributory factor, are you? No, no, not at all. Um, you mentioned the Dick Care ladies. I mean, they're absolute fantastic examples of what I mean 
about women playing on in the face of FA opposition. I mean, these women who were essentially factory girls initially told the world they were basically representative England team before such things were even thought of. They went to the USA and there they played against uh, teams in France quite a lot. So, you know, women's football was you know, well regarded and it was watched you know, elsewhere in the world. And when it was permitted in England and promoted properly, it drew crowds here as well. The Dickhead ladies were playing as Preston ladies up until the 1960s. So even they weren't crushed uh, by the ban you know, and uh, back in England. Um, the English Ladies FA was set up in the 1920s. The women said, we're going to organise it ourselves. Um, Federation of International European Federations of Football um, was basically an independent UEFA. They set up their own tournaments in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, the Women's FA came around at the end of the 1960s. So even though the FA weren't interested, and nor were UEFA and nor were FIFA, there were different organisations thinking women are still playing, they deserve to have their own competitions. Um, there's a brilliant 1951 correspondence between uh, a guy named Cranshaw, who is part of the Nicaraguan FA, and he writes to FIFA and he says, women are playing football entirely unsanctioned. <laughs> he's seen it in, in Nicaragua, he's seen it in Costa Rica, he's seen it in the USA. And the response he gets from FIFA is remarkable. They basically say, we have no jurisdiction over this and we've got no interest in it, so we're not going to do anything about it. And it's interesting that within 20 years, FIFA and UEFA and all the FAs are like, hang on a minute, this is getting too popular. It's snowballing. Um, the independent FAs had been setting up their own international tournaments. They were having their own independent European championships. They were organising their own representative national teams. They had an unofficial World Cup. We, we marked 50 years of that last year, the lost lionesses who went to Mexico. So it got brought back in. Oh, under the national governing body's umbrella, they're going, yes, OK, you may play on our pitches now officially. But um, as we'll hear when we talk about the Women's FA Cup, it was still very hard to get clubs to agree to allow women to play football because there had been this half century of prejudice and roadblocks put up to stop women from playing the game. So, yeah, of course, the ban has contributed towards um, the way that women's football is now worldwide. I mean, if you compare uh, women's football in England to women's football in the USA, for example, in the USA, um, little girls are encouraged to play football from kind of infancy. It's funded through school and through college. And as a result, they've got the most successful women's national side in the entire world. Whereas in England, there's still been kind of stop-start progress. We've only had our professional league for the past 10 years. It's only kind of in recent years that the England team has even been properly funded and supported. So really, there's kind of no comparison. I mean, the ban has had a massive impact. OK, well, speaking of the FA, 2021 also marks 50 years since the first Women's FA Cup final. The first ever Women's FA Cup competition took place in the 1970-71 season. Journalist Chris Legg has written the forthcoming book, A History of the Women's FA Cup Final, and Carrie spoke to him earlier in the week. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Um, you've been writing about the Women's FA Cup, and you've got this book coming out. Um, obviously, the Women's FA Cup does have a big history, but it's not as lengthy as the men's. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Women's FA Cup started? 
Yeah, almost exactly 100 years shorter than the, the men's history. But yeah, it, it started really through um, through the WFA, the Women's Football Association, which was formed in 1969. Now, uh, uh, when I used to work with Patricia Gregory, who was one of the co-founders of that, um, she saw Tottenham men bring the FA Cup back to Tottenham Town Hall in 1967 with her dad. And she thought, I've never seen women play football. Why have I never seen women play football? And she wrote a letter to a local newspaper asking that question. And she was inundated with responses from other young women uh, asking whether they could join her team. And she didn't actually have a team. She didn't really play football. She was interested in it. But she thought, well, I'm going to set up a team. There's obviously interest out there. And she formed a team called White Ribbon. Uh, she then became aware of a chap uh, down in Kent called Arthur Hobbs, who was a carpenter. And he ran a, a tournament every summer in Deal called the Deal Tournament, uh, where women's teams got together and her team entered down there. And gradually, year after year, more teams were joining uh, his tournament. And by 1969, when uh, Patricia's team rocked up there, there was clearly enough interest to, to bring an organisation together. So most of the teams there voted to join the WFA. And very quickly, they put pressure on the FA, the Men's Football Association, who was still banning women from playing, women couldn't use any facilities, any pitches, or book any referees. And by December of 1969, in fact, they had been notified by the that the ban on women playing would be overturned. It, it took another two years, 1971. Everyone knows that date is when the FA ratified it into their rules. Uh, but before then, the women's FA knew that it was going to be allowed, so they started to form their own competitions. And the first national competition in this country was. Women's FA Cup, and it had its first final on May the 9th, 1971. So this May uh, will be 50 years since that very first final. Um, and it just gathered place year after year after year. 20 years down the line, uh, we had our first National League, called the National League, in 1991. And 20 years after that, 2011, the formation of what we have today, the Women's Super League. Now, if it hadn't been for the Women's FA Cup, um, the first time that teams from all around the country could compete against each other, then we wouldn't have had the National League and we wouldn't have had what we have now, which is a fully professional uh, women's Super League. Amazing. Um, so you mentioned about um, grounds in as you were talking about the history of the tournament. Mm. Um, so this the first FA Cups for the women, that you won't get a Wembley final then, would you? You were still getting it out on uh, non-league grounds, if that. Yeah, we certainly didn't have a Wembley final in 1971. We didn't even have a, a non-league ground that year. They had to use... The football pitch in the middle of Crystal Palace Athletics Track at the Crystal Palace National Sports Centre. Now that venue has history because 20 of the men's FA Cup finals were held there in the early parts of the 20th century until Wembley became the home of that in 1923. But yeah, even though the, the FA had overturned the ban and women were now allowed to play, it wasn't embraced at all. And 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 still football league grounds were not going to allow women to play there so that very first year in the middle of an athletics track there is some surviving footage of it you can see how long the grass is really difficult conditions uh, for the teams of Southampton and um, Stuart and Fittle who are a Scottish team but that first tournament the first few in fact were over to teams in Scotland and Wales as well the following year we did get a non-league ground and we had non-league grounds right up until 1982 when QPR first football league club uh, to allow the Women's FA Cup final to take place at their ground, Loftus Road. Back then it was a plastic pitch, an artificial pitch, which, which some um, men's clubs were experimenting with at the time, and they weren't very popular. They were, in fact, outlawed by the FA 
um, four or five years later. But it, yeah, it took another 11 years after the first Women's FA Cup final before they could even hold it at a football league ground. And of course, it took until 2015 until it was fully embraced and Wembley started to stage the showpiece occasion. It's so funny to hear you talk about them experimenting with plastic pitches in the early 80s because we had that in the Women's World Cup in 2015, essentially being played in artificial pitches in Canada. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the, the artificial pitches today and those ones used in 2015 are a far greater standard um, than we had back in 1982. If, you, if anyone ever gets to see pictures of the men's uh, games that took place on those pitches, the, the bounce of the ball was ridiculous. And the teams who took part in that final, Lowestoft, who won it, they beat Cleveland Spartans 2-0. Cleveland Spartans became Middlesbrough, who are still playing today in the fourth year of of women's football and, and they found it so difficult to play on that surface and um, but yeah we see that disparity don't we because you wouldn't have i mean there was a lot of controversy in the 2015 world cup that you wouldn't have a men's tournament played on artificial surfaces to that level uh, but we do have nowadays obviously very good artificial pitches um i mean crystal palace women play down the road from where i live um on on bromley's artificial pitch but you have quality artificial pitches these days you, you certainly didn't have that uh, back in 1982 it, it was a terrible surface for the women of the time to play on and to adapt to and in some ways it, it put a bit of a dampener on the experience for them because um one of the teams turned up without any astro boots at all lowest off the winners managed to find some but boots didn't fit them the smallest size you could get was size five because obviously they were all made for for men and that's still a problem we have today by the way a lot of Sport equipment is, is obviously designed with men in mind and women. Um, and they found that such a difficult thing to have to come to terms with. So although it was it was great, a celebration, in fact, the Football League had finally allowed a game to take place there. It was really difficult for the for the players involved to adapt to it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, looking at the way that we had the Women's FA Cup now, obviously the past five finals, I can't I can't count anymore because I don't know what year <laughs> it is anymore or what season. And um, we've had them at Wembley, an amazing step forward. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when that announcement was made in 2015, I think it was May of 2015, maybe a little earlier in the year that it was moving to Wembley. I mean, everyone involved in the WFA back at the end of the 60s and 70s, the likes of Patricia Gregory, who I've mentioned, moving on to the 80s and the 90s, everyone involved was was like, finally, what we have been pushing for so many years is going to happen. You had um, managers of Charlton, Keith Boannis, Charlton women, and Vic Akers, of course, a legendary Arsenal women's manager who won the FA Cup 10 times. They were pushing it at the turn of this century that it should be at Wembley. And again and again, they were meeting this resistance. Not enough people are going to want to watch it. Not a good enough standard. And they both made the point, look, you hold the, the FA Vars final there. You hold the FA Trophy final there. This is for non-league men's teams. The FA Vars is for teams in the ninth and 10th tier of, of men's football. You, you might get 10, 15, 20,000 there. Obviously, it's not the highest standard of football when that doesn't prevent you holding the Women's FA Cup final there. And they, they were banging the drum for that 20 years ago. It took until 2015. And, and I think the reason that the FA finally felt confident to hold it there, well, a few factors. 2012, the Olympics, of course, with 80,000 people going to Wembley to watch that match. And then, of course, we had high hopes going into the 2015 World Cup. Uh, Mark Sampson was in charge at the time. And the FA thought would delay the FA Cup final, we'll push it back to August after that tournament in the hope that England had done well, we can ride the wave of that. And of course, England did ever so well, finishing third, 
beating Germany in the third place playoff to bring home that bronze medal after losing to Japan in the semi-finals. And it just, it rode the crest of a wave. We got a 30,000 crowd at Wembley for that 2015 final between Chelsea and Notts County. And that was double the attendance that had been to the 2014 final at Milton Keynes. And it just gave the FA confidence. There really is the interest there. And every year, until actually the, the most recent one, pre-COVID, which went down by a couple of thousand. Every year it's gone up and up, and we're close to 45,000 now. And I was lucky enough to interview Steph Horton for my book, who's, who's won the FA Cup as a captain four times. Uh, and she genuinely believes that within her career, we could sell out Wembley for a women's FA Cup final. She sees no reason why that couldn't happen. The interest is there. It's growing every single year. It's watched by 2 million people live on the BBC, and it's, it's far more realistic for a family to be able to go and afford tickets and go and watch the Women's FA Cup final than it is for men's when you probably aren't going to get a ticket. And I think a lot of people are cottoning onto that, that this is a great introduction for younger people to get into football, to actually be able to afford as a family to go and watch a match. I'm quite sure um, when my kids are old enough to go to live football, it's going to be women's football that I'm going to be able to afford to go to as a family because, you know, elite men's football is really out of the price of of going in a, in a group of four or five to go and see a game. Um, so everything has pointed to the fact that this competition can grow and grow. I genuinely think it's through the FA Cup, in fact, rather than the Women's Super League, uh, that the audience for women's football um, can grow more quickly because the FA Cup means so much to so many people, certainly in my generation. If, if you're not a mad sports fan, but you're looking for, for something to do for your family, you understand the FA Cup. If you're in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, you understand how big a deal the FA Cup was for men's football. In fact, not such a big deal in men's football now, conversely, because it's become all about the money of the Premier League. But I think it just hits home. It resonates more with people than the WSL, where you can take a little bit of time to, to research and work out what it is and you know how, how you win it. This is if you're completely a football, rather than the FA Cup, you just understand it's knockout football on the day there will be a trophy, I know from having a five-year-old boy, if you under, if, if you explain to him what the FA Cup final means, that at the end of this, someone's going to have a cup, going to have a trophy, they're going to be the champions of that competition. It's far easier to explain that than this is a league and if they win today, they're going to get three points, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they've won something. We're going to have to wait a few more months. So I, I, I really think that there's actually so much more that the FA Cup, the women's FA Cup can do to capitalise on the audience that is quite clearly out there. Well, we're in quite a strange situation this season with the Women's FA Cup because, as you mentioned, mm. the elite men's game and the elite women's game is slightly different. So we've got the Women's FA Cup basically in abeyance for the time being with no real sign of when it might pick up again. Yeah, as we speak right now, we just don't know. It's it's suspended indefinitely. Um, the, the FA did openly talk about the possibility of tossing a coin or drawing lots to determine which of those clubs who have progressed to the second round will, will continue in competition. I'm sure that FA will be very, very, very keen to conclude the competition, but it seems to be in the back of their minds that cramming all of the fixtures in with, with grassroots football, as it's, as it's called, for those clubs in Tier 3 and Tier 4 of the women's game, not able to resume right now and not likely to resume, and not able to resume prior to... Um, 29th of March at the earliest, the FA are thinking, well, how can we put all these games? We might have to draw lots, toss a coin to see who joins the elite teams, the, the WSL and the championship clubs 
in in round four so that at least they can preserve their final. Now, as a football fan, I, that's absolutely heart-wrenching for the teams, lower-ranked teams who are still in it. it. It doesn't at all fair. And there's, you know, understandably so much anger and frustration, confusion out there among those clubs who, for them, getting to the third or the fourth round is kind of their final. The, ch- the chances we had a couple of years back for Crawley to play Arsenal. I mean, that was the greatest day in their history uh, to host Arsenal at their ground. And they had a record crowd of about 1,500 down there for that. But at the same time, you can see the situation that the FA are in because to kind of scrap the the competition in its entirety, which, which some people say would actually be fairer, um, would would be missing out on a year of, of a, a showpiece final, which, as I've said, many millions of people will watch on TV. It would mean disappointing their sponsors, Vitality, who bought last season um and there's no way that they will you know want a year without a final to, to, to fully show off um, their support for this competition so the FA are in a really tough place quite understandably as well there's a lot of upset and anger that the men's FA Cup has been able to continue whereas women's football has had to suspend the competition for quarter years the clubs involved in the women's FA Cup at the stage we have reached are grassroots clubs. By the by, the time we got to lockdown three, as it was um, just after Christmas, there were very few non-elite men's clubs left in the FA Cup, so it was able to continue. Now, I think the FA had to do this. It's, it's government rules as such. I don't think it's sexist. I, I think, obviously, it's through sexism that we are in a situation where the vast majority of women's football is grassroots and a huge section of of the men's game is elites. Yes, that's through sexism. That's through no support over decade after decade after decade for the women's game. But the fact is that's where we are, and they couldn't really allow grassroots football to continue through a, a global pandemic. But it leaves us in a really tricky situation in, in, in what should be a celebratory year, really, the, the 50th birthday of, of the first final, and we don't know how the competition is is going to resume. We don't even know for sure that it will. I, I suspect that it will. I suspect it's probably going to be along those lines of really having to disappoint a lot of these lower league clubs and almost having to get them to, to forfeit their their positions on, on, the, on the toss of a coin. But um, yeah, we shall see and we'll, we'll probably find out over the next two or three weeks, I would imagine. So as you mentioned in the interview with Chris, we're quite far behind the scheduled fixtures now for this year's FA Cup. and We should be approaching the quarterfinals, but we're stuck on the first round. Do you think, Carrie, that COVID has revealed the extent of the disparity between the men's and the women's games? Or perhaps it's fairer to say the impact that money has on the game? I think it's difficult. I mean, I think... Uh, so we, I hinted at it when we were talking, when we were t- I was talking to Chris. Um, I think the FA have handled the situation probably as well as they could do. Um, it's difficult. Um, we don't have the same amount of money in the women's game, but we also have the same number of grassroots clubs in the women's game. The FA Cup isn't quite as large and overarching as the men's FA Cup. And yet, of course, that's kind of... Uh, that is a disparity between men's and the women's game that, we, that has grown up over kind of the past century. And of course, it's to do with money. Um, clubs can't afford to run themselves. They can't get volunteers in to operate. And of course, 
we can, I just talked about this a little while ago, and the talent pool is much smaller mm. because you have so many fewer girls playing football at any kind of competitive level, even at grassroots level, than you do equivalent men. So it is, it, it's really difficult. I would hate to see the FA Cup decided on a coin toss. I think that's absolutely madness. But I can see where the FA are coming from because we surely we can't let it get much further behind schedule. There's no money in the women's game, basically, is, is one of the reasons why it's not kind of gone on in the same way as, as the men's game has. I think it's probably fair to say that the powers that be were, you know, very concerned about getting the, the men's, you know, the Premier League and the Championship back up and running again. Whereas the other leagues, it's a bit like, well, you know, not that fussed about, not that fussed about you because they don't make the same amount of money. Um and, you know, rightly or wrongly. So I guess some people would probably say, OK, so we're saying, you know, the women's game has no money. But Manchester City, come on, guys, you know, it's not like they can't give them a few quid to sort out some extra COVID tests, is it? Yeah, the problem is it's, it's not really all about that with the FA Cup. So because the big teams come in much later uh, in the women's FA Cup, the stage that we're still at and we will be for the next four rounds for the women's competition, it's still grassroots level. So these girls are going to be going to their jobs on Monday after playing their cup tie on Sunday. It's not like they're going to be able to isolate and stay in a bubble, et cetera, et cetera. If they're playing FA Cup tie, that means they're going out and they're traveling, which is unnecessary travel because it's grassroots sport. So it's not so much about the testing because I'm sure the money is there and the FA Cup has got a title sponsor this year, the Women's FA Cup. Vitality is sponsoring it yeah. and it has had for previous years as well. Um, if you go back quite far in its history, there's, all, there's a, quite often a title sponsor hovering around, although the serious money has started to come in in the past few years. But unfortunately, it's not just about money, I don't think, with this, particularly in the middle of pandemic. It's about the practicalities of it too. It's really unfair to be expecting your squad of completely amateur players to be undergoing this level of COVID testing, to undergo any kind of isolation, and then be expected to be back at work on Monday morning for the for the salary that's going to pay their bills. So I guess kind of links to this in terms of the disparities between the games. We talk a lot, as Chris has in, in his interview there, about women's football as a sort of family game quote unquote. And I totally understand that because, you know, it's it's so much more affordable and there are perhaps, you know, behaviours, shall we say, <laughs> in the men's league that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily want, you know, uh, a young child to be um, a party to. But I do wonder sometimes, while we're trying to right the wrongs of men's football in the women's game, to a certain extent, um, is it a bit patronising? Or do you think it's right to sort of say, look, it's its own game, let's stop making these endless comparisons. It's a totally different product. Yeah, a little bit. We had a chat about this a couple of months ago, Jen, if you remember, when the Women's Super League players went to Dubai. And I had a bit of a rant about the way that women players are expected to behave uh, kind of better than their male counterparts. And we're kind of shocked and horrified when they don't. Um, yeah, I completely understand why people think that the women's football is more of a of a family excursion than the men's game but I think women's football is also kind of caught at a really difficult moment it's trying to become more professional and you're going to find players behaving in certain ways you're going to find players you kind know, of 
moving uh, because they need to or they want to earn more money. You're going to find players uh, behaving in ways that perhaps they wouldn't have done when they were semi-pro or amateur because they have more money coming in. And they also, I think, at the same time, I think you're right. I think there is a very deliberate move to keep presenting women's football as affordable and these players as kind of great role models and the girls next door. And I don't think you can be all things to all people. And I think we've caught a really pivotal moment where I think the powers that be are going to have to decide exactly what the Women's Super League is, what the England team is and how to market it. And I'm not quite sure they know at the moment. I was thinking about this earlier today and I am, for my sins, a Charlton Athletic season ticket holder. And, you know, a Charlton Athletic season ticket is very affordable. Poor Lyra, my daughter, um, I very much look forward to taking her to the Valley when she is of an age to go, you know, and enjoy it. And, and actually, if you look at the season ticket, you know, for, for a lower league team, they are affordable. It's something that comes up a lot. And I, I suppose the, the point is more that the Premier League is not affordable. Well, I think the, I think the point is is that yeah, okay, a chance season ticket is affordable if you're paying kind of for your season ticket. But if you're taking you and Lyra and maybe one of Lyra's friends and then paying for your brother to come along as well, you're then paying for two adults, two kid tickets, and that's where the costs start to escalate. Whereas if you're going to the women's super league, quite often you get kind of family deals, so you're paying twenty quid for a whole family day out. I don't want to do um, Charlton Athletics marketing for them here, but um, <laughs> it's free for an under Someone eleven. <laughs> it's free for an under eleven with a uh, accompanying a season ticket holder. Just FYI. Anyway, moving on. One of the things that the FA Cup is known for on the men's side of the game is the kind of shocks and surprises. You know, it's very much marketed as like anything could happen. So, do we see much of that in the women's game? No. Um, again. I, I... I alluded to this earlier, but because you've got the big teams coming in so much later, there's far fewer banana skins to try and navigate. So, yeah, it tends to be your your big teams uh, reaching the final. So, yes, not quite so many shocks and spills. So we're delighted to welcome a guest to the show today, uh, Megan Wynn of Bristol City and Wales. Uh, Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're currently on the road to recovery after a nasty cruciate ligament injury. How did you do it? So yes, yeah, it was pretty tough because so I literally I was on loan at Bristol and then they luckily enough offered me a permanent contract. Um, I think it was sort of May time last year uh, and then moved moved down here and kind of moved in on my own had my place all set up and then went back in I was feeling good first week of pre-season uh, we just did fitness testing and that um, I, I was feeling good and then that second week of pre-season it was the first contact session back actually um, during training it was a bit of a strange one because you normally hear that it's such a painful injury and things like that I've gone in kind of lunged forward gone in for a tackle to try and nick the ball um, and one of the girls actually fell on the inside of my leg so I must have landed in kind of a, a weird position, but I actually got up and I was jogging on it and kind of didn't didn't feel any pain. It was just felt a little bit weird, a little bit strange. Um, so yeah, kind of went inside and then that evening, yeah, just swelled up and that was it. Really went for a scan and within within a week or so, I'd had the surgery. So it was it was a bit surreal because I kind of walked into the surgery and but couldn't walk out. So <laughs> bit of a strange one. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tough because I hadn't, obviously, like I said, I hadn't played much 
kind of played much at Spurs that, that first season in the WSL. Um, and then this second season, yeah, I haven't, haven't been able to play. So fingers crossed next season, <laughs> we'll be able to. And were you living by yourself when you're doing this rehab? So you kind of hopping around the house, you know, making your lunch, <laughs> getting in the shower and washing your hair and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, so so like I said, when I'd actually done the injury, I didn't didn't have any pain, which was the weirdest part of it. Um then yeah, post post surgery, um, mum was able to come and stay with me for a couple of weeks. So yeah, that's how we got through that bit. But yeah, hopefully over the the hardest part of it now. But but like I said, it's one of those injuries that you hear about often, but you don't realise the the kind of the physical impact that it has on your body so I, I kind of lost you know the muscles in my leg had to learn how to walk again how to run again so that first three and four months you know you're not on the pitch at all you're just kind of in the gym every single day building up that strength so yeah it's a tough tough old injury and then um, it's that the well I have never really had an injury before so it's both the physical and mental side of it as well so how's your rehab going yeah it's, it's obviously it's obviously been a really tough time but I'm seven months post-op now, so on the on the end of it, and hopefully, yeah, ready and raring to go for the new season now. So I've just got to concentrate on that. So you moved from Tottenham last summer following your loan spell. Can you just explain to us a little bit about how transfers work in the women's game? Do the club approach you individually? Did you have an agent handling stuff like this for you? Uh, yeah, well, in my experience, um, it was kind of a case that I, I wasn't kind of getting the minutes that I wanted to. Uh, within with Spurs in the first season within the WSL and at my age you know I was kind of wanted to be playing and I was pushing on with Wales and breaking in there so I wanted to make sure I was playing and give me the best possible chance breaking in that Wales squad so kind of the the January transfer window came up and yeah I had a had a conversation with my agent said yeah need to be playing she went out and kind of see what clubs were interested um came back obviously Bristol were interested so sat down with the club and with Bristol as well to speak about how that would work and both parties were happy so yeah that's kind of how that came about. And it's been a big few weeks for Bristol City so let's start with what's a first for football anywhere in the world as far as we know. Your manager Tanya Oxterby is off on maternity leave and Matt Beard has been appointed as temporary cover so this is absolutely incredible and not before time. How did you find out about it and, and how are things going? Um, yes, obviously it's going well and, and things are really taking off this back end of the season and it's an exciting time. And obviously, um, the Tanya, we knew Tanya was, was pregnant for a little while. We didn't really know how, how it was going to work. Um, but I think it was a few weeks before, two or three weeks before it was meant to happen. Um, Tanya sat us down and, um, let us know that obviously she, she would be going off in the next couple of weeks and, and the club was, was due to bring someone else in. We didn't, we didn't know who that was going to be. Then a week or so later, we heard the news that Matt was coming in and, um, he, it all happened very quickly, to be honest. Uh, obviously the girls, girls were delighted to have Matt coming in. Um, he's obviously been in the women's game a long time. Um, so yeah, he's, he's really brought a kind of new sense of motivation and, and really got the girls working hard and, given us a chance now to stay up so fingers crossed yeah and you've got this cup final to look forward to as well you've got the Conti Cup final coming up at Vicarage Road on Sunday March the 14th some very tough opponents you'll be facing as well and what's the spirit in the squad like looking ahead to it yeah obviously obviously I think the the main focus for a little while has been on the league and making sure that we secure that WSL um, status but it's, it's something for the girls really to look forward to they've done ever so well to get through those stages of the Conti Cup because we've uh, people might say that we've had an easy run, but you know you've got to beat what's in front of you. And 
we have faced some faced some other WSL opponents and things like that. But I know the girls are really excited and some of them have never never been in a final before. So it'll be a great experience. And yeah, gutted that I won't won't be a part of it. But I'll be there, be there on the day and, and being their biggest fan. And we know it's a huge task with Chelsea. I mean, they're world-class players throughout their squad. So gonna be a tough tough ask but you know anything can happen in, in a cup final so you never know <laughs> yeah you've kind of hinted at it but obviously in terms of the league you know City have had a really tough time of it you're in that relegation spot I mean what's it like for you because you're not in a struggling side is it kind of awful because you want to get on the pitch to kind of help out or is it kind of good because you're not involved when it's kind of quite depressing yeah no obviously it's no one wants to be sitting where we are in the table um and I for me, it's hard because you kind of want to be influencing things on the pitch, but you can't. So I've had to had to find other ways to try and, you know, be part of it. So I try and go to all the games that I can. Um, obviously, I'll be always be at the home games and, and trying to support in the dressing room at half time before the game, uh, getting the girls motivated. I, I'm probably one of the older ones in the squad. So, uh, yeah, just trying to give the advice and guidance that I can. But like I said, it's it's a tough time and the game's come thick and fast now in the next two weeks so everyone's in that squad's got to be ready and hopefully we can push on and you know anything can happen now we'll have to wait and see yeah why do you think the cup form has been so good when the league form has been so disappointing yeah obviously we've we've faced some different opponents and I don't know maybe the pressure of the the super league like the league games is gets a bit much sometimes for the girls where you know you can go into the cup and kind of relax and play play your free-flowing football and we've probably had we've played uh, played some teams in the lower league so you know we've had more of the ball and had a chance to express ourselves as whereas in you know we're playing tough opponents week in week out within the super league and and no it's not a light it's not a it's where anyone can see that you know we don't have much of the ball it's a lot of defending so that's probably had a part to do with it just kind of letting the girls express themselves and yeah that's probably why we've done so well in in the cup I reckon. Um, so Bristol City were in the news, I think about a year ago now, they were participating in a sort of groundbreaking study um, on the impacts of the menstrual cycle in relation to sort of training and things like that. There's some evidence to suggest that these injuries can be linked to fluctuations in the menstrual cycle. And I wondered, um, is any of that work still going on and is that being incorporated into training in any way? I don't think so. I think there was a study that we were uh, taking part in. It was more of the S and C. Uh, Chris Stifford that was here before, but I don't think any. He's left now. He's at Everton, so I don't think anything. He might have take part in it at Everton, but there's nothing going on behind the scenes here. The only team I know that do a bit about it is Chelsea. Mm. But yeah, no. In terms of loading and things and monitoring different players, it's something that's always discussed, but never kind of brought to fruition really so yeah something that probably needs to be looked into more but in terms of loading and what you're doing in, with this uh, time during the cycle but yeah no nothing nothing too much goes in. Megan Wynn thanks very much for joining us. Anyway let's move on Jen to talk all things Lionesses and um, they've just played their first match in almost a year with a 6-0 thrashing of Northern Ireland at St George's Park but despite the lack of matches, plenty has been happening. And I know that you have some very strong uh-huh. views. <laughs> Bill Neville's reign as head coach has come to an end. Carrie, I know how I feel about this. Spoiler alert, it's good. Where do you stand on this? Um, yeah, I, ca- I can't say I'm disappointed. He's gone off to into Miami, which 
seems to be a bizarre managerial appointment. You spent that long getting a club up and running and then you appoint Phil Neville as your manager. Um, I genuinely think that the Lionesses have underperformed and not played brilliant football under his tenure. And I was disappointed, to be honest, with their 2019 Women's World Cup performance. And yeah, I'm pleased that there'll be a new manager coming in in the autumn. And hopefully it'll be a, be a new broom, different style of football and hopefully a first major tournament win. Yeah, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. OK, so it looks likely to be um, interim coach Hegarisa in charge of Team GB during the Olympics. So remember that Eurosport are the official broadcaster of the Tokyo Olympic Games. Um, yeah, Hegarisa has come in uh, as interim head coach. She was the one in charge of the, uh, of the Northern Ireland match and been joined by uh, Rianne Wilkinson uh, as assistant. Um, it wasn't uh, a stunning performance at St George's Park, um, although you wouldn't have expected it to be. But um, the whisper seems to be that if the if the squad are happy with the way that things are going, it is likely to be that management team going to Tokyo. Okay, so the timing here is is a bit... <laughs> it's pretty awful, isn't it? I mean, it's good that Neville didn't stay until a week before the Olympics or, or whatever it was going to end up being. But um, what can a new manager really do with a squad in six months? And then what happens if they perform well? We're just going to sort of kiss them goodbye and say, right, see you later. Yeah, um, it, it is. It's very unfortunate timing. I mean, I think Phil Neville was kind of hoping that he would be able to be there at the Olympics to lead that Team GB. And then just kind of dragged on. Obviously, it was postponed for a year. And I think it came to crunch time, so he just went. Um, yeah, we have a coach permanently appointed but she'll be arriving after the Olympics and that's Serena Wiegmann she'll be there in time for the uh, Euros um, hopefully next year um, yeah it'll be interesting to see who she brings in will she bring in her own team of assistants um, what kind of uh, overlap will, will there be will there be a handover with the interim team yeah the, the timing isn't great you have to say so Serena Wiegmann takes over after the Olympics as you say and fingers crossed, she'll be there in place for the Euros. She's got pretty good pedigree and um, winners of the European Championships and runners up in the World Cup with Netherlands. Our expectations are going to be massive, aren't they? Expectations should be massive at this point. Um, England have had so much investment and so much time. They've got this massive backroom staff going with them to tournaments now which is part of the reason I kind of think they really underperformed in 2019. You can compare the support they had in 2019 with what they had in 2015 in Canada when they finished third. And then what they had in 2011 and before that. So when Hope Powell is rocking up in Germany with her, with her squad and a very limited backroom staff, I mean, Hope Powell was basically running the entire international setup for the women from senior to junior for 15 years. So, yeah, I think Serena Wiegmann comes with a fantastic track record. And I think it is a signal of the expectation that this England team should be winning things at this point in their development. I think, you know, I have to agree with you. The, the last World Cup was, was a huge disappointment. I didn't think we played particularly well. And to, you know, and to end sort of like in a worse position than we had previously is, yeah, really disappointing. Yeah, I mean, you heard Phil Neville talk about how it didn't, he didn't really care about the third, fourth place playoff because, you know, it's not winning a trophy. And 
it was quite an unfortunate observation seeing as obviously the women come in third was the best in 2015 was the best that any England team had done at a senior international tournament since 1966. So, um, yeah, it's time to win things. Let, let, let's get on with that. Agreed. I should also say last week we saw Jill Scott finally receive her 150th cap, equaling the achievement of Farrah Williams. Obviously, she's been waiting for months to teeter over from 149 to 150, and she's finally done it. So congratulations to her. Yes, congratulations, Jill. But moving on, um, someone who's been linked to the Team GB job is Chelsea manager uh, Emma Hayes. And she dismissed that idea quite categorically last month. And she said, nothing to comment on about this. I'm just thinking about Chelsea and nothing else. And then she was similarly scornful when she was linked to the vacant position at AFC Wimbledon in the men's game. And she dismissed those initial reports by saying they couldn't afford her and then clarified that she hoped they could find someone who was appropriate. And then she added, the whole point about them not being able to afford me is nothing to do with money, but everything to do with the fact that I'm already in the best job in the world. The most notable of her observations was when she said, it isn't secondary to anything, just we don't question female teachers differently to that of male teachers or female physicians. We talk about women in football like we're not entitled to the same opportunity and the same access. It's quite odd that there's still such a massive fuss about a female coach potentially working in senior men's football as if it's some kind of promotion. Jen, I know you have a lot of thoughts about this. Would you have liked to see Hayes take the Wimbledon job? Yeah, I have really mixed feelings about it. So I kind of, I think it would be really great and clearly a sign of of a huge amount of progress to see a female manager in the men's game. But I, you know, I think it would have been very sad for the women's game to have lost Hayes. And I also think, and I do mean this, you know, again, they're, you know, they're in the same league as my team. So I mean this as, as no disrespect whatsoever. But to see Hayes moving from like, you know, the, one of the top teams in the whole of the women's game to a League One team and a sort of struggling League One team at that as a step up, it's just baffling to me. It's completely, completely baffling. And I, and I think it would have been a massive step down for her, actually. The way people reacted to the rumours, again, shows very clearly that we still think of the women's game as a poor relation to the men's game. I think if you ask the question, you know, how would fans feel about it? My feeling about football fans is that actually we're we're very basic, really. Uh, we, We don't think too much about it. I'm sure, you know, there would be a percentage of fans who will not accept women in the men's game and and you know there's there's no room for maneuver on that but i think a lot of fans in the kind of age old adage that if you're a woman doing a job you've got to do it better as long as they're winning i don't i don't think anyone would care very much i don't know what do you think about that yeah i think i think there's certainly a grain of truth in what you say i think i mean it, if, if anyone watched the, the rugby at the weekend and you saw um, the abuse that Sonia McLaughlin was getting yeah. for mm. uh, the questions she was asking, I do still think that when you are a woman working in a men's sport, the gender is the first thing that comes as an insult to be thrown at you. It's, it becomes a weapon to be used against you. Now, I don't think Emma Hayes would mind. I mean, generation before it was Hope Powell that was being linked to taking the job in the men's game it was her that was being listed and all the betting so that's every time there was a vacancy and obviously they're not the kind of people that would be bothered by that but I don't necessarily think men's football is 
as welcoming to women as women's football is to male coaches of equivalent standard. Well, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right on that. And, and you know, not to bang on about Phil Neville, but... <laughs> Let's not. But, but I do think it is absolutely worth saying that for a woman in a sort of comparable situation, it is unthinkable that a female coach would have walked straight into another cushy job such as that with such a demonstrably bad track record. Well, would you like to see more female coaches in women's football? Because we do have Serena Wiegmann coming in to take over at England. We've got Hegger Risa and Rianne Wilkinson in charge of England at the moment. Um, so we talked about Tyler Oxley at Bristol City and her job's been taken over by a man temporarily. We have a man in charge at Manchester City, a man in charge at Arsenal. What do you think about that? I think it's interesting because I kind of think I want the I want the person who is best suited for the job to have it. But what I don't want to see is men who aspire to work in the men's side of the game using positions in the women's game to springboard into better. You know, Phil Neville. What what experience? How much experience did he really have to take a job like that? It's unthinkable that a man with the limited experience that he had, would have been able to then coach the men's England team. It's That just wouldn't have happened. So it just feels to me like a place where men can come and kind of cut their teeth and then go off to the men's game. And, and you know, I, I don't think there's a problem with people trying to progress in their chosen profession, if you see what I mean. I, I don't think there's a problem with that. And I guess the thing that I would like to see is I would like to see more women see that there is a career pathway for them in women's football and in women's sport. I'd like those pathways to be there. And I'd like to see, you know, the the talent pools grown from the absolute grassroots level so that, you know, there are more people coming through. I should actually give credit to the FA here because they have actually just launched um, a coaching excellence pathway. So they've kind of uh, identified 16 promising coaches in the women's game who are being mentored to get to the top of it. So Carla Ward at Birmingham is one of the ones uh, who has been selected for this programme. I talked to her about it last week and it sounds really exciting. They're talking to um, different kind of leaders from different fields to kind of understand management style as well as having kind of support with their football coaching. So I think the FA are kind of acknowledging that there has historically been an issue with that talent pool and that pathway to progress. And, you know, you're right, of course, what you're saying about Sonia McLaughlin, you know, you only ever have to, if you're on Twitter ever and you see Alex Scott trending, like your heart kind of <laughs> sinks, like, well, how how has she triggered people this time, you know? Um, so it's kind of like, and, and you know, as, as we always say, I know you say, I say, lots of people say, it, she is more qualified to do her job than almost every single other male pundit out there. Because she actually has a qualification in journalism, <laughs> which most of them do not. It's very frustrating. I don't know. Like, obviously, we are both female journalists talking about sport. Do you find that you get a lot of nonsense from people out there? Not from, obviously, people I work with and not from people who actually read what's been written. I think my favourite bit um, was just before... I can't even remember. I can't even remember what time works. How time works anymore? I'm so confused. Uh, just before the 2019 Women's World Cup, 
And uh, your friend of mine, Gary Lineker, had tweeted about um, Man City chasing a, a historic achievement if they'd won you know, all the trophies. And I just tweeted it was be historic achievement in the men's game because Arsenal have done it already. And I'm quite fortunate in that my Twitter is set up so I don't see any tweets from anyone who isn't already following me who I haven't engaged with previously. <laughs> Gary Lineker wasn't best pleased with the idea that I might have been calling him sexist, which I wasn't. I was just making an observation that in English domestic football, this achievement had been done before. But in the women's game, <laughs> I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Twitter replies to my tweet. I did not see a single one of them because of my settings being set up so that I didn't see anyone I hadn't engaged with previously. So, yes, I think you can still end up with a bombardment of gendered abuse uh, just for existing uh, or talking about women's sport but I think that's kind of the exception rather than the rule now at least I hope so but I don't do a lot of tv I think it might be different if you're kind of putting your face Maybe. in front of the I do find if you ever talk about about pay in football that seems to be a bit of a trigger for some people and I will just mention one because it's funny and um, one comment I had actually on a Eurosport article uh, I think it was about Ava Carnero and someone commented on it I'm all for equality, right? But I just think women need to get out of football. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, well, you you fundamentally misunderstood the meaning of equality there. So thank you for your input. <laughs> um, should we bra- take it back on topic? Um, yes. Talking about coaching. Um, we've talked about England and Team GB. Do you think that the person in charge uh, of England and of Team GB this summer should be an English woman? Because that's the problem, isn't it? Once you start saying, oh, I think it should be a woman, then you get into this kind of like, oh, I think it should be, that I think they should be English, I think. And and I honestly don't care whether or not they're English. I really don't care at all about that. Um, I know a lot of people do. Yeah, I sort of, I, I want it to be the best person for the job, but I would like to see more women having jobs that enabled them to take on those roles, I guess. Yeah, it's difficult because... Wouldn't it be great if there was an English woman ready to take over the job and who would want the job? But mm. the one who seems obvious is Emma Hayes, and she's already said that she doesn't want it. So after Emma Hayes, you're kind of limited in your candidates if you're looking for an English woman. Exactly. So, you know, back to the TED Talk. Um, I, I want to see more opportunities for those women to progress. Oh, so hopefully that will be imminent within half a generation. Yeah. By the time Lyra's coaching, Jen... <laughs> Yeah, sadly, we think uh, we think she's a goalkeeper. So a bit disappointed about that, to be honest. But, you know, we'll be fine. We'll get over it. That's about all we've got time for. You can follow us both on Twitter and indeed Instagram. I am at InspiraGen on Twitter and at GenOff. That's two N's, two F's on Instagram. And I'm at Carrie Sparkle on Twitter and at Carrie Sparkle 123 on Instagram. And of course, don't forget to follow Eurosport at Eurosport underscore UK and at Eurosport on Instagram. Get in touch and let us know what you think about the topics we've talked about in the show. And hopefully we'll be back soon before the next International Women's Day rolls round. Happy International Women's Day! Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.